right, everyone. We are in for another awesome, fantastic, amazing, fabulous rendition of Facts Not Feelings Friday with the wonderful Michael Stewart. Hello, Brooke. Thanks for having me. You are so welcome. For everyone that doesn't already know Michael, Michael Stewart, also known as just Michael, don't have to say his last name, is with PCT. <laughs> and I've known Michael for a few years now, uh, three, four years now, I want to say. Yeah, we're going on three years. Yeah. Three years now. Um, and we're just going to jump right into it. Michael, tell us about you. Tell us about how you got in the industry and how you got into this crazy world. You know, I'm going on 13 years in the automotive industry, and uh, to be completely truthful, it was by accident. Um, prior to getting in the industry, uh, just before 2009, um, I was a PR consultant, which is very close to, of a discipline to marketing and, and digital advertising and all that, but it was very different. And I was working with a whole different set. I was working with like healthcare clients, I was working with thought leaders, like business academics and those types of folks. And I was wanting, this is back, you know, 2008, 2009, around then when, you know, social media was really starting to take hold. And that was one of the first areas and avenues I went to in the digital sphere for my clients was like, okay, we need to get on this. And I was working for these boutique agencies and they just didn't get it. So um, I decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something along those lines and get more into basically everything that was digital marketing. So I started meeting with a, a gentleman named Roy Vavaro, who at the time was the uh, director of marketing for uh, an auto group called DCH Auto Group. Um, they, at the time, they had 27 stores. Uh, they're based in New Jersey near where, where I am. And uh, we started talking and he was looking for someone who won was was knew something about social media and especially advertising, but had also worked with kind of nonprofits. And I had a background working with nonprofit foundations because they, as a group, decided that they wanted to become very charitable. And they had a program that was all about teen safe driving. So this position that they had uh, as a marketing associate, you were going to be one working with the dealers and the group to push their brands and push their marketing, but you were also going to be working with this social responsibility program. And so we met and talked and it just became very easy because I knew the direction they wanted to go. They wanted to take this program and eventually make it into a full-fledged charitable foundation. And I had done that before. I had worked with a medical device industry and took one of their kind of like research programs and turned it into a full-fledged 501c charity. So I kind of joined them up and what started out as just kind of just working with this program kind of evolved into more as I started identifying things that the dealers could be doing better on the digital market. And at the time, digital marketing was still kind of like people were very still hesitant about it. They wanted to be more traditional, like I need to advertise in the newspaper because people come in and show me the newspaper ad. And it was like, no, that's not exactly how it is. <laughs> so from there, uh, DCH Auto Group was eventually bought by Lithia. And um, I stayed on. Lithia kept me on because they looked at me. One of the gentlemen who was part of the acquisition team said, you know a lot, don't you? I'm like, yeah, I, I know a thing or two. I can identify things. And they're like, okay, you would like to solve problems? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'd like to solve problems. They're like, we can use you. And they kept me on to where I was 
a digital marketing manager for uh, 55 stores in the East Coast, all of which were acquisitions for Lofi at the time. Nice. And then after that, I had an opportunity to go consult with Subaru. Um, I left Lithia to join dealer.com and Cox Automotive to work exclusively on their Subaru program, where they are the exclusive vendor for Subaru dealerships. And I oversaw a team of field consultants on the East Coast running from New York State down through Florida. And then after that, after traveling a lot for them, I decided I, I wanted to stay home more. Um, and it was a wonderful opportunity to talk with dealerships, uh, especially on the super side, because I was consulting not only on like tier two, so regional based advertising, but also getting down in the gritty and working with dealers. And I've always had this enjoyment of educating dealers, mm-hmm. giving them the tools to understand their marketing and to be proponents of the best practices. So um, I've known Brian Pash and PCG for years. I was a client with them when I was with Lithia and an opportunity to work with Brian and his consulting group came up and I said, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to be one, work with dealers. Two, I want to bring my knowledge of working with big groups and working with manufacturers so that dealers can be have a more realistic picture of what it actually takes for digital marketing to work. That's kind of my career in a nutshell. I, I think at last count, I've worked with over 300 dealers. Just a couple. Couple. Just a couple. Yeah, just a couple. <laughs> you know, and, and, and all sizes, you know, all areas. I worked with guys, you know, I worked with dealers out in like the middle of nowhere at Bennington, Vermont, to yep. dealers that are in the New York or LA metro areas, you know, high volume stores, low volume stores, mom and pop stores, you know, big corporate stores all over the place. What's so nice about that, I know that back in consulting days, whether it was um, been, been a consultant multiple uh, different times in different companies. And it's nice with that because you're able to see uh, different ideas. You're able to see, okay, like you said, with mom and pop stores, so they ginormous, hey, we sell 400 cars a month or 500 cars mm-hmm. a month. What works and what doesn't? Even at, at both ends of the spectrum, they're doing good things and they're doing things that can improve. They can improve. Mm-hmm. And you can t- take things for, from all different, for different OEMs and what I loved about that is that you can go into each of these different accounts and different the different stores and say, hey, now that's a really great idea. You're doing a great job there. And you're not taking trade secrets or anything like that. You can just say, yeah. hey, why don't we tweak, you know, tweak this and why don't we tune this up a little bit? And hey, what about trying this out? And it's so great because when what we do, you're able to say, let's try something different. And as long as they're yeah. open to that, it's wonderful because you're like, I've been able to see, well, you have, even if the even if a group has, let's say 27 stores, that's awesome. And you've done a phenomenal job with those 27 stores, but period, there's no, but period. Mm-hmm. I've been able to travel. I, you know, the one job I had, I was in like 200 stores a year. So I'm in 200 stores a year across the nation and in Canada. Let me show you some of the other stuff that I picked up through what the other oh, yeah. people are doing throughout the, throughout the nation and in Canada that are working really, really well. And it's so great to be able to, provide you with this information and that information. And it just works. Um, it's really great to be able to, like you said, educate the dealer when they're willing to listen and to hear you mm-hmm. and, and they want to improve and they want to uh, try different things. Uh, 
Now, when you were with PCG, remind me, you're, uh, obviously, we know you're, you're account manager now. Uh, yeah. You're doing a stellar job with that. Did you help with Visadash? I, I thought you did. No, no. Uh, okay. I did not. Visadash, but I was part of, um, when I was with Lithia, Visadash, we, we used Visadash very well. And so I understood a lot of that. And I, it's one of those products that's out there that if you want to understand every level of your marketing as a dealer, I highly recommend it. Um, the team I'll of Visadash. I'll second that. Yeah, the team that I, I know people who worked at Vistadash. Um, some of my mentors in the industry work for Vistadash and are consultants with Vistadash, and those folks know their stuff and they know how to get things done. I, I, I love that team. I think they're just such a great resource for dealers. Yeah, it's a big, and I will plug Vistadash right now, full force right now for this. The tool is incredible, and it's the only yeah. me. It was the only way that I could see everything I wanted in one centralized spot. You have all the have yeah. a, a roll-up report, an enterprise roll-up report, see everything. You're not going in. No knock to Google Analytics. Google Analytics, you can still mm-hmm. do it, but try to find the report that you're trying to find and dig through and to try to find a zero, uh, to try to find photo, to try to find all the different things you're trying to find. I'm not going to say it's impossible because it's not, but it's pretty damn hard. So and It takes a lot. It cool. takes an effort. To, it, it, ta- yeah. it takes a lot of effort to consolidate every kind of platform you're working with. Yeah. Kind of, it, it also speaks to how dealership marketing and, and how dealership sales work are so decentralized. Oh my God. Used to be. Yeah. Because yeah. you can, you have people who probably never touch your website who are submitting a relief. Yeah. You know, and it's like well, in the old days, if you didn't go to the website, or walk into the dealership, nobody knew, knew who you were. You know, you weren't talking to that customer, but nowadays, I mean, the customer may not even visit your website and is already talking to you about, you know, this car or that car or whatever. Yes. So, yes. So uh, mm-hmm. just huge thanks to Brian, Vista Dash team, Dan, Micah, uh, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for, for having the product. So uh, if you don't have it, we will definitely drop the link in below and you guys can uh, give them a, a shout out there. So if you're uh, wanting yeah. to learn more about it, because if you're, if you at all, even if you don't know anything about Google Analytics, it everything is right there. It's what I like to call idiot proof. You can't screw it up. So <laughs> it, it, the reports are right there for you. So, yeah. um, I, you recently had an experience as we were talking offline with a a, a car. We'll just say car incident, and yeah. that it got us to talking a little bit about dealerships. A lot of times, and managers they really are trying to do the right thing. And sometimes Absolutely. maybe miss the mark a little bit, but I mean, man, their heart's in the right place and they're really trying to do the right thing. And just kind of got us talking a little bit about, you know, what can, what are some like common mistakes that you see? And it's not like, no, and I won't say fall, but they're like, they really are trying. They just need like a little bit of guidance above things that, you know, off your experience, yeah, your experience over here. And it's also taking ownership a lot of what's going on around with your market. Um, your vendors, for the most part, I'm going to tell you, you know, they are trying. They're, they do, a lot of them do have your best interest. There are some snakes in the industry like anyone else, but they do have your best interest, but they need your input to get it right. Yes. yes. And that is always helpful. For me as a client account manager, I, whenever I talk to my clients, I ask a ton of questions of what's going on in the dealership. Just from the standpoint is I could talk to you every day, but I'm not physically there. Nope. So I'm never going to know the dealership as well as a marketing director or a general manager or a general sales manager or a B 
BDC rep. I'm never going to know you as well. So giving me as much information about your dealership helps my brain go and say, okay, this is what's going on. So I need to do this, pull this lever and push this button and do all that. And that's going to make your marketing that much better. And the incident that you and I were talking about, um, so I got a dead battery in my car. Called roadside assistance, get it jumped. Um, being someone in the industry, I know what's going on with a lot of service drives. They're understaffed. Uh, a lot of people, you know, COVID outbreaks, all those kind of things. So I walk into a dealership. I'm completely understanding that things are going to take a little bit longer and everything like that. Get my car over to the dealership. Phenomenal advisory team. The service advisors were just phenomenal. They were very appreciative of my understanding. They got me in and out in a day when I knew I was one of those last minutes. So they changed my battery, checked other things, did some other work while I had it in there. And they were done. I dropped it off on one afternoon. The next morning, it was all done. Fantastic experience. Pick up the car. Everything is great. When I get home within a few, you know, probably about 20 minutes after I picked up the car, get a text message from the dealership following up on my appointment. And it asked me, you know, leave them a review. I'm like, Perfect. I love when I see this stuff. This is great. You did it the right way. You sent me a text message. All I got to do is click the link and I can leave you a, a rosy review because your team was phenomenal and you did a great job getting that to me. Problem was, <laughs> when I hit that link, it wanted to take me to review a, a, on a GMB listing or a Google business profile. Great. I will tell dealers one of the big secrets of good SEO is driving reviews to your Google My Business listings. That is key. Posting photos, driving reviews, it makes your listings more relevant. It shows up better in search, means that people are actually interacting with it. So Google gets the idea that this is what people are looking for. Great. Problem was, they took me to their sales listing. Now, as we all know, back in the day, back when Google profile listings that were part of Google Plus, so when Google tried to build their own Facebook, their own social network, it was Google Plus and all businesses had listings. But car dealerships were limited to just one, which doesn't make sense for the industry because you're variable ops, fixed ops, you're a house divided, you don't meet, you might talk every so often, you definitely make money off each other, but you know, you really are separate businesses for the most part under one roof. Yeah. So then Google expanded and allowed car dealerships to have multiple listings. And usually you have three, you have sales listing, which is your general listing, you have a service listing, and then you separately have a parts listing because your parts business is separate from service. And then you might have a, a collision center or something along those lines. So, but here's the thing. I don't want to leave a service review on a sales listing. That's no, for your sales clients. And to make your service listing more relevant to search for people who are searching for, say, Nissan oil change or you know, that sort of thing. Having reviews on there tells Google that, oh, people are doing activities with this business in my local area, so I should serve you this listing of a place to get your Nissan oil change done. Mm -hmm. So they sent me to the sales list. Not good. Because... I'd already left them a review when I bought the car from the dealership because it was a good <laughs> sales <laughs> process. I had a, I had a very good sales advisor. They were fantastic. So I left them a review saying, Hey, you guys did a great job. You got me the car I wanted. Everything was done quick, you know? So I couldn't leave another review because I'd already reviewed them. Okay. So I went back to the text message and it did allow me, the service did allow me to pick another place to leave a review click over to Facebook, 
it's the wrong Facebook page. Plus, it opened up the browser instead of opening up the app on my phone. So then I had to try and log in and remember my Facebook password because I haven't looked at my Facebook password in probably years because I'm just used to just logging into the app on my phone. Okay, couldn't do that. Then they wanted to take me over to Yelp, which... No one looks at Yelp. Nobody, well... Not not in our industry. Yelp is a breed on its own as far as reputation. The algorithm uh, in Yelp, like, don't even get me started yeah. on that. Unless you're a restaurant industry, our industry is yeah. going there to yell, and anything good is going to be pushed down unless you pay for mm-hmm. it. And yeah, and if you are not, if you're pushing your customer to review you on Yelp, Yelp only posts the reviews of Power Yelp users. Yep. So you've got to leave multiple reviews multiple. on Yelp for Yelp to consider your review relevant to your listing. And if it's not, Yelp just removes it. Good. Yelp is a breed on its own. I don't recommend you driving reviews to Yelp unless there's a big, big snafu or something like that, or the manufacturer or your region is like, we need Yelp reviews or something like that. No. The big three, as far as I'm concerned, are GMB, Google, Facebook, those are very important. And then lastly is like a toss up between like dealer Raider or Edmund. So um, my question on dealer Raider, since you brought it up is mm-hmm. dealer Raider is uh, their reviews are a little sketchy as well because they're, mm-hmm. I don't know how much you want to get into this, but you know that they're not a true rating. <laughs> how no, they compile I, that is not a true rating. It's just to be able to get up onto the knowledge panel. It was different when I remember when dealer Raider first launched, it was different back then. Um, that badge for like the dealer rater, dealer of the car, um, dealer rater dealership of the year or everything like that can actually be a nice game changer for dealerships as that far as can. young people. Yeah. Pay and the, your Google, my business profile, oftentimes you'll see um, it'll pull in profiles. Now, we, anyone working with your GMB or your Google business profile, you can't control no. what review things mm-hmm. show up. It, Google's pulling it right from search. So you usually you'll have not only the GMB rules, but then you'll see like three different profiles. It's usually mm-hmm. like Facebook dealer reader for automotive dealerships often shows up there. Yeah. So that's why I always like say, okay, play nice with dealer reader. If you want to send them reviews, fine. Edmunds is another one because Edmunds is often a research site where people are researching things. Um, cars.com, you know, there, there's another one where people are looking at reviews. Um, so usually, you know, you're, your big, two, your main two is going to be Google, Facebook, and then a third one that is popular in your area. Because there are regional differences between yeah. which review sites are getting reviewed. And just real quick before we move on, um, in case anyone listening is like, "Why do you keep saying Google My Business Google profile?" Uh, Google My Business, uh, Google decided to change the name, and that's why mm-hmm. we keep changing and we keep stumbling and we keep saying the wrong thing or we keep saying the different thing. That is why Google has changed the name. I don't know for how many years now we've been saying GMB, just mm-hmm. you know, because uh, the auto industry has more acronyms than NASA. <laughs> it's ridiculous. The BDP, SRP, you know, all these different things. We there's a lot of things. You know, how many times do I have to say vehicle display page or search okay. results page or those kind of things? After a while, I need to shorten these so I'm not taking up so much time yeah, and talking that is, about that is one VSR. thing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's no longer it's no longer Google My Business. It's Google uh, Google Business Profile. Google, yep, yep, yep. There you go. Eventually, we'll take over GBP, which is still a mouthful to say, but yeah. So, anyways, okay. So back to your experience. They send you to yeah. the sales profile. You can't open it. Then they send you to Facebook. 
Yeah, it still doesn't open. Still can't get into it. Yeah. So, so continue. I, so the biggest thing, the lesson I would say for dealers right here is having a reputation management strategy and having working with a reputation management vendor is great. Always do it. I think it's a fantastic thing mm-hmm. because I don't think people understand how much the customer controls your brand. Mm-hmm. Your brand is your reputation. Yeah, yes, you are going to do things to try and separate yourself out from the competition, whether you know you have some sort of sales process that is something you want to push out to your customer base, or you're the home of you know one price dealership, which that's an old kind of term because most that's people have gone to the one price dealership <laughs> now, but you know, you have a brand for who you are, you're the people dealer or whatever you want to be, or you also have that manufacturer name above your dealership name. So you're blank Toyota of blank. The manufacturer, that bigger brand is always going to dominate. Always, always. So even for the manufacturers, their brand is their reputation. And that is a very key part. I wouldn't say it's always your entire brand. I think it's, but it's such a strong part of your brand that you need to have that positive feedback from your customer base. And you need to drive that. People are checking reviews. People do check them out. Oh, 100%. And, and I tell people this. I said, don't rely on having like your reviews on your website. I think you should. Absolutely do it. Make sure you've got a And a have a live feed of it as well. Live feed of your of website. Absolutely. But understand, people going to your website and checking out the reviews know that you're only posting the positive reviews. Oh, yeah. That the negative reviews are not going to show up. Um, and also, also understand that if you think that you can fool the customer into it, there are online tools now where customers can actually put something up and log in and snuff out the reviews that are bogus. Yeah. Which is, is really funny, especially if you're, if you shop Amazon, like I do, I always run this tool based on reviews to see which reviews are legit <laughs> and which reviews are not legit, you know, are spammy and the auto industry for the longest time. If you've ever dealt with, um, Google on reviews and all of a sudden you see your reviews just disappear. Yes. It's because I found this out years ago. Google considers dealership reviews to be the spammiest of spam. So they are often What are we more doing in our to, industry? Come on. <laughs> we're all, they're often more likely to remove your reviews without reason than any other industry just because of the way dealerships are. Uh, and, yeah, I've had mine remo- removed multiple times. Oh yeah, I, and I, like, I actually bought clients. the car, but it's, it's uh, yeah, and I've had my review, and it's got the photos, and then they're gone. I'm like, oh, okay. Apparently, my, 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 I, I'm I, spammy. It, it happens a lot, and oftentimes when they remove your reviews, you're not getting them back. No, they're just mm-hmm. it's not going to happen, no. and, and and that's unfortunate. Um, and, and it's just like as an industry, I always like to joke with folks. I say we always have to be mindful of the customer perception because there is such a bad stereotype about car dealers. Yep. I mean, and every year there's a ranking of the least trustworthy oh. professions, oh. and it's it's car dealers, lawyers, and members of Congress. Which is so that, insane, insane. That, like, it's insane because the stuff the stereotype. I mean, look at this face. See, look at this face. Yeah. This is a trustworthy <laughs> face. Come on, seriously, people. <laughs> well, it's so funny because everyone's worried about you see the Carvanas and the Brooms oh, and all those guys, commercial. and they're advertising based on that stereotype. I know it's, it's so bad. And it's, and it's like, I I've been in this industry long enough. Most of the stereotype is true. I know this. I've worked with dealers. Most dealers are very trustworthy and all that kind of stuff. So 
we have to do everything we can to overcome that stereotype. Mm-hmm. So having that reputation management strategy is fantastic, but understand how it should be executed. And that's the mistake that we forget. It's like, just because I have reputation management doesn't mean it's going to work. I got to make sure one that I'm monitoring the right profiles. Mm-hmm. So my sales customers go to my sales profiles. My service customers go to my service profiles because I need to build those up. I, it's one of the biggest things. So when you're running that kind of um, reputation management program, make sure you talk to whatever vendor you're using or whatever your process is. Make sure you have it spelled out for sales, variable ops, yes. and fixed ops and service and parts so that you're doing it the right way to make sure you're getting everyone to review you in different areas so you don't have like that service review your your sales listings are like you know you're like 4.9 out of five for your sales but and your service department is fantastic but all of a sudden people look at your service rating and you only got like two one-star reviews and it's just because someone had a misunderstanding where they had a bad day and they're just ticked off well i think and then test it i mean i know you and i've Mm -hmm. talked about as well is that so then what happens is, is that then your parts department, because all you're sending everyone to your service department, your service listing, parts is the redheaded stepchild and parts has zero listings, zero reviews. Well, what the hell and that's a big moneymaker. That's a big yeah, moneymaker. Some of those parts. That's a huge moneymaker. So what yeah, especially, you know, you know, for those certain dealerships who, where you have a lifestyle based car that you're selling, you know, whether it be your BMWs <laughs> or even the Subarus or um the minis or any of those kind of guys you have a lifestyle based product yeah so parts and accessories that's a big deal big. i mean do you know how much how much money a dealership can make off just those truck accessories from mud flaps to uh, lifts to anything like that those are that's a good profit center yeah so make sure you're merchandised and you've got reviews and people are having a good experience dealing with your parts counter have some smart people there doing that it's a vital part of your business that it's often overlooked. Yeah. So just like, you know, and I know quick tip for everyone watching, if you made it this far, congratulations, you're getting a nice little uh, tidbit here. Uh, it, every, every other month, switch out where you're, where you're sending those reviews. So one, yeah. one month, send them to your service listing. Next month, switch out where you're sending them and send them to your parts listing. That way you're going to get reviews to your, to your both service and parts. The next thing I'm going to add to that. <clears throat> is to make sure you're reviewing, not just when the reviews come in, respond to your reviews. Because what you're Good seeing is, all, it, it's, it's amazing how you'll see, we have, oh, we've spent all this time getting all the reviews and nobody's responding to them. Oh, well, we have our OEM mandated, uh, I'm not going to name any names right now, but we have our OEM mandated reputation management system. Whether it's good or bad is a whole other story. Not even yeah. going to get into that. It goes out there. So it's a survey, but that's making us do a reputation management. But we have another system that actually sends out, it does the text message. It does the da-da-da-da. And it's actually catching those customers and it, it lets us know whether they're happy or not. So we're going to say that's the real reputation management system. But we have this OEM mandated one, but we're not responding to any of these reviews. So mm-hmm. if you've got two different systems make sure you're responding to the actual reviews because if you go into Google and you've got a thousand reviews and nobody's answering them, not does that look horrible to the consumer, Google is going to eat you alive. 
Google's going to yeah, say, and, and it'll reduce your, your relevancy. Yeah. Respond to reviews. Good, bad, indifferent. Just say something. Yes. And it can just be, thanks for the review. We appreciate yes. your business. Yes. As short and simple as that. Now, I understand, you know, for a lot of reputation management strategies, you have to be conscientious of the manufacturer surveys. Mm -hmm. Those are very important to the manufacturer. So another thing to do is to work out the timing with whoever you're using for your reputation management so that you get the reviews. You get a review and the OEM gets the review because people can get surveyed out. I don't know how many times, how many surveys. I get tons of surveys every day. Mm-hmm. And after most of the time, I just delete them because I don't have time to fill on another freaking survey. Mm-hmm. I don't have time, you know, and it's just you get surveyed out. So you have to be cognizant, especially in the sales, that you get that customer to do the manufacturer survey and then your survey. And it, there are different tactics and tips. And the reputation management vendors out there or the people who focus on that, they have some good strategies that you can implement so that you get every aspect of your brand and reputation monitored and situated so that you can continue to do really good business. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So going on the whole timeline situation, that brings me to a topic I know we were talking about earlier as well. I wanted to go on as well. So advertising. So mm-hmm. we're, we're in February, February is a short month. And yeah. I was talking to not only you, another colleague as well, is that you have a short month, uh, our offers, most dealership offers come in. By the time you actually get them, we'll say it's generous, generously, we'll say mm-hmm. maybe the 7th, the 8th, you have a short yeah. month. Mm-hmm. By the time you actually get them up, assuming that- uh, in, yeah, And um, you don't have a weekend in there where mm-hmm. people are not working or you're off or closed or something like that, yeah. You've got all these different Google, you know, all the algorithms out there, machine learning. Um, mm-hmm. Talked a little bit as we were discussing earlier, I'm gonna have you take the floor on this one, but just how the our industry where we're on a 30-day cycle doesn't exactly mm-hmm. match up with what advertising actually is and how Google is and how the machine learning is. Yeah. I'm just gonna take the floor on that one. <laughs> yeah, that it, it, <clears throat> as an industry, we are obviously on a 30 day cycle. Every 30 days, things change, offers change, people's um, sales goals change, and all that kind of stuff because it's based on a month and based on 30 days, which in an e commerce standpoint doesn't necessarily work in an industry. Whereas we're selling the second biggest purchase a person will make in their lifetime, that doesn't work. We know that, and Cox just recently came out with a new average for the customer journey, and they're now up to 89 to 90 days. So your customer's journey to purchase is somewhere around 90 days. So within that journey from where they started researching their car, the car they want to buy, from finding the car that they want to buy to finding the place they want to buy their car, more than likely they've gone through two or three different OEM offers or two different sales Mm -hmm. that is very detrimental to the customer buying process and leads the customer to kind of have this anxiety am i getting the best deal possible if i wait another 30 days am i going to get another possibility okay so that is already putting our customers at a disadvantage and making our customers kind of anxious add on to that I, I always like to make sure that my clients understand that it takes longer for Google ads and Facebook ads to work than they assume. Mm-hmm. 
the learning cycle. So when you put together a Facebook, app, there is a whole audience learning. So it serves to the right people, the people who are going to interact with you, the people who are going to have taken some sort of action that they're interested in buying your car or getting your service special or doing something along those lines. Right off the bat, right when you place that Facebook ad, there are at least seven days, seven days for that to just start a learning process. And I've seen this across the board. So for my clients, I, I always recommend, and this is public knowledge because um, it, we've promoted this before. We always recommend having at least one ad that runs for at least 90 days. Whether that's a branding-based ad, where you're just looking for brand recognition, or you're, it's an offer that you're not going to change for 90 days, you know, whatever that happens to be, so that when everyone else is down and dark, you've still got advertising running. I usually recommend a branding-based ad, yep, because it starts at the higher funnel, a little bit higher funnel, and when your offer does start, when you definitely launch your offers you're going to basically, you're kind of pushing that person down the funnel to make them a little bit more of a lower funnel person. I think it works very well. But just as, you, with, especially with offer-based ads where the offer changes out at the end of the month, just as that algorithm has finally learned the audience and is serving to people who are most likely to buy your car, you're changing that ad. That ad's changing. Now, one good technique, and you can talk to your your advertising vendors like that. You can ask them. I said, okay, are you deleting that ad and putting up a new one, or are you just updating, updating the ad? It. Because if you're updating it, it still pretty much has keeping that audience that it's learned, so they can keep going. On the Google Ad side, you know, especially if it's dynamic based, if it's dynamic inventory, so it's only showing the inventory that you actually have which is something I always recommend, always run dynamic inventory, only advertise the cars you actually have or the cars you're getting. Um, we can get into later talking about how custom order advertising works now that we're in this kind of low inventory climate. Um, it takes a while for Google Ads to learn. So just because you say, okay, I got an influx of these Toyota Tundras and I'm in this big truck market, I got a lot of competition from Chevy and from Ram and from Ford, I got to really promote these Tundras and it's a great alternative to the domestic brands. Don't think that, you know, if you post it up on the 15th of the month and whatever you're going to do, you're going to sell all those cars by you know, the 30th of the month. It takes a lot longer to learn the audience. Algorithms for as beautiful as they are. And as uh, I, I call them beautiful because they take a lot of information. Yeah, they do. A lot of data and turn it into a targeting practice that gets in front of the right customer at the right time. So it takes a while for it to really learn it, especially because you have people within your own dealership, they're looking at your website, they're going on your website, they're looking at cars and everything like that. So they're actually sending signals to Google and Facebook that they're in market because of their activity. Eventually the algorithm figures it out and they stop serving those ads to those people. But, until it learns all that, it's not going to be optimal and be optimized. So just, and especially, I always tell this to new clients where we're starting new Google ads accounts or we're starting new Facebook accounts and everything like that. You got to give it at least 60 to 90 days before we're actually going to start seeing results. We may see some good numbers to start because it's designed well, it's the right message at the right time and all that kind of stuff. 
but to really get it going, it takes a lot longer than most people realize. And that's one of the keys of good marketing across channels, across industries, whether it's traditional advertising, broadcast advertising, out of home, in home, OTT, Facebook ads, Google ads, so uh, um, SEO, reputation management. The longer and more consistent your advertising runs, the better it's going to be. Yep. Don't be quick to change things because you don't think something is working right away. Now, there are adjustments you can make. If you see something and you need some help, you can change budgets, you can add money, you can take money away, that sort of thing. You can add in an audience or you can take away an audience or you know, along those lines. You can make those adjustments. But the longer and more consistent your advertising and your messaging is, the better it's going to play, especially with a customer journey. It's like 90 days. 90 days, that's an entire quarter. Yeah, You know, an entire season has passed before yeah. someone is going to even consider buying a car from you. Well, I feel like, man, I want to say like years ago, not year, yeah, years, years ago, it was, it was a 90 day cycle. You saw the up, the down, and then it'd come up again. Mm -hmm. And then it shortened and we're back to this 90 days again. And I don't, I don't know what to attribute to that. I don't know if it has anything to do with it. I think a lot to do is with pricing. Uh, That's pricing the only thing. A lot to do because it, Roy Bavaro, who is uh, right now, he's the um, uh, director of the National Foundation for Teen and Driving. He's also, he's been a uh, marketing consultant and uh, director of marketing for auto groups. And he was one of my early mentors. Mm -hmm. The first thing he said to me when, when I got into the auto industry was cars are stupid expensive. Yeah. Cars are the second biggest purchase a person will make in their lifetime next to buying a house. So yeah. it, people are going to be not only anxious, ready to fight, put their fists up. Mm -hmm. But in general, because the price is so much, people are going to take their time to figure it out. It's not like you're buying a $20 t-shirt. No. I bought a $20 t-shirt more than likely if it sucks, if it's terrible, it doesn't fit, the sleeves are the wrong size, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make me look nice or anything like that. Okay. I can go get another one. Yeah, I can go okay. get one every, every month, every week if I wanted to. Yeah car i'm not buying a car mm -hmm. you know if i even if i'm leasing it's for at least two years yeah you know and cars people hold on to them for anywhere from five to eight years i know me personally i hold on to my cars a lot longer than most people mm -hmm. so when i go to buy another car i'm very precise in what i want to buy and what price i'm willing to pay for that yeah so and i think that it, it's becoming a longer journey not only because of the pricing but i think it's also because we have, there's not as much inventory there exactly and we've trained car buyers that to buy it off a lot. Years ago, I'm going back like 40 years. Mm -hmm. You never bought you, the cars buying off a lot. That wasn't as big of a deal. It was a lot of times you do it, a lot more custom orders like we're seeing now. You know, I know growing up with my parents, my parents never bought a car off the lot. Mm -hmm. They always ordered their car. So it was precisely what they had. They didn't want anyone touching their car. They only wanted like, 10 miles on the car when it came delivered, when they bought it. They didn't want the car that's been moved back and forth and test driven and everything like that. Nope. They ordered every single car they bought. And even to this day, my 70 something year old mother, she will not buy a car off a lot. She orders her car. And I'm like, okay. So this is something that we uh, practically an entire generation of car shoppers have never done. Yeah. And they don't understand it. Because it's also a sense of in 
an e-commerce base as the industry has finally figured out e-commerce, what e-commerce is and how it works and how we should be doing it and all that kind of stuff. Custom orders never played into it. It's always been about advertising what we have on the law, the actual inventory. And e-commerce is great at advertising products you actually have. It's a little Not bit trickier. Not what you don't have. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit trickier when it's something you have to request be built by a someone mm-hmm. else and it won't be delivered for six to eight weeks if you're lucky. I was going to say at best, yeah. There's so- immediacy. The online buying is an immediacy thing. You don't have to drive to a store. You don't have to, you know, wait for the cashier to ring you up. It's basically an instantaneous transaction. So we've trained practically an entire generation and probably two generations of people mm-hmm. of this instant purchase. I'm instantly buying it. I clicked, bought, there it goes. It's coming to me. It'll be here in a couple of days. And nowadays, that's not happening anymore. No. And, and websites aren't, as we just said, websites aren't, they weren't meant to... Today's websites are not built for uh, the inventory shortage. Um, yes, it's 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 it's. Uh, I, I hope that we can get to that point. That hey, this car is not here, and I know Brian's done a lot with this to say hey, yeah. this car is not here. Have a pop up about this. Hey, call us about block. You know whatever or custom ordering, custom ordering, ordering. There we go. That was a rough one for me to say right there. <laughs> Let's try that one more time. Apparently I need some more beverages right here. So um, it, it's just, we're, we're not at that point. I know that you, yeah. you, you had some really cool um, experiences and examples of kind of what you're doing with some of your stores. Yeah. So um, it, it, this came to, a, I was thinking about this recently because uh, if you're a follower of Brian Pash on LinkedIn or any of his social channels, he posted recently, about um, how he was trying to help a friend of theirs find a car and couldn't find it. And when they were going into everything and they were looking at things, they just didn't see how they could even custom order the car. And Brian recently posted about some of the other research and he said, you know, the manufacturers and the website providers are really doing a disservice in this climate. Whereas you have less inventory, so being able to customize the car or order a car, it's not as well done as it should be. Um, you don't have those options because it's all BDP and SRP based. Whereas, you know, you need to be more about, I don't have the car, I can get you the car, here's how we figure out what you want to actually buy. Because again, you know, we're in the modern times and you know, digital retailing has taken hold of the industry finally after, you know, so many years of people preaching it. Um, we not need a new to concept, able... by the way, people. Yeah, digital not, retailing it, is not it, new. This has been going on for new. years. We, it's just now everyone, oh, I, oh, this is a new concept. No, it's not. <laughs> and, and now that more people have, have adopted it, it's actually getting better. I remember some of the early digital retail tools for, for automotive they weren't very good. Um, they had problems with people actually finish using the tool because people didn't understand it. If you have a DR tool on your website, if you're using a DR tool, make sure you have some way to explain to the customer of how it works yes. because they're not used to working with it. And the more explanation they have, the better interaction. They brand want. it. And then also, actually do what it says. Don't just brand it and then not mm-hmm. be able to use it on your website and then not have, an in, have the in-store experience. Have a freaking in-store experience. For the love yes. of all that's holy, don't slap a button <laughs> on your website and then say we're done. Have a video explaining it. Have mm-hmm. branding experience and then don't even just, off your website. 
even if it's just bullet points explaining what the process looks like and how it goes, that's just give your customers some information to yeah. alleviate, again, alleviate their anxiety about having to do business with you or wanting to do business with you. Um, and also a little tip, if you're using it with your DR tool, talk to your DR vendor or your website provider, ask them how many people are starting the tool but never completing it. Figure out what that looks like. Because if you have a high percentage of people who are abandoning the tool midway through it, either they're not interested in it they don't understand it or there's some other issue going on, make sure you understand that percentage. Um, it's very key to understanding how you're dealing with tools. But kind of getting back to what we were talking about, what Brian was saying was that, you know, we don't have these kind of tools for people to custom order. Now, a, a bunch of my clients have, have got, worked with some different providers and they have developed tools within their website or on like, you know, kind of like a uh, mirror site that still looks like their website is all the functionality, but it kind of, it unfortunately takes them off site because that's the way the tool works. It's still connected. There's still connections. You can still track everything because that's one thing. Another tip, try not to take people off your website. Oh, please. Make sure you stay on your website so you can track them. If you have to, for some reason with some of these tools and everything like that, just make sure there's some sort of connection so you can understand that tracking so you can understand that track. And there are ways to do it. It's not the best thing to do, but you can make it work. So what they've developed are these tools that mimic how the manufacturers allow people to build cars. Now, if people go to the manufacturer website, they can build out the, the car. They can select the trim level. They can select the packages. They can select the, the wheels, all those types of things. What this product, what these products and what my client is doing is they've built the same thing within the website and it allows people to do all those features. But instead of sending them to like the manufacturer website where they'll show you the dealers where you can find that car, it allows you to one, review what you want, look at what the suggested retail price is, and then either one, submit it to the dealership to get that car ordered or talk with the dealership right then and there, talk to a sales advisor or a BDC rep where they have a conversation. And that's on a kind of on another topic, but just another tip. Brian preaches this, I preach it, all of my colleagues at PCG preach it. Create conversational-based websites or conversational sales opportunities so that it's not just someone either clicking adding a form or just calling a random phone number it's you know people who can text message or they, they can text message or they can chat or something along those lines where it's actually to someone who is right then and there in that immediacy bdc folks love that they love text and chats because there's an immediacy to it phone calls are great don't get me wrong phone calls are awesome we want to try and avoid forms because forms we know the my up of issues with forms and all that kind of stuff. It's not conversational based. So we'll get back to you. There's a timing thing and everything like that. But the more opportunities you can create within your website, within your sales process, where the customer can actually talk to a live person is going to make that experience that much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh and there's so many ways you can do this, right? You can, mm-hmm. uh, there's, it's, it, Sky's the limit. Turn your CTAs into chat buttons. Now, mm-hmm. my caution with that is if, if you're doing that, make sure very, very vital your process is in place. If that's yeah. going to a chat agency, is that what you're doing? Uh, the better 
better play here is to have that go into the BDC, have that go into yeah. your salespeople, have a live person there to get it. Now, are are there better chat agencies than others? Of course there are. Yeah. Now, are, are, are they there to actually handle the exact question the person has about price? There's no way a chat agency and a chat provider is able there to answer questions about price. There is no yeah. way they're answering that. They are sending that over there. So now you're back. And they're not, using your, they're not using your brand. No, no. Yeah. So if you're going that route of, hey, we're going to, great, fantastic. We want to make everything conversational. Fantastic. What is your process? So before you start, once again, slapping buttons on your website to suffice, whatever, what is the process? Work backwards. Where mm-hmm. is this going? Who is answering it? When are they answering it? Where is it going? And what happens when someone is sitting across from me in my desk? If I have a live customer on the other side of my desk, who, and I get a, t- and I get a chat, who's answering this? So you got to think backwards is that what's our process? Because I can sit mm-hmm. on my desk as a manager and say, I want more leads. I want more leads. Great. What's happening with the ones that are coming in right now? Because yeah. we can't. Make sure those are being that. handled right. Yeah. I mean, you, there are ways to figure out do I need more people to handle my leads? Don't overwhelm. What, I will, I think every BDC director or manager will love me for saying, don't overwhelm your BDC reps. Yes. Make sure you have enough people in place to handle your traffic and your leads. Yes. There's, and understand the difference of that. I've always used the rule, if your rep is getting, is working more than 150 leads a month, that's too many. Yep. Any reasonable person can handle about 150 well, meaning that they're able to talk to everyone. They're able to, you know, get them to come into the dealerships at an appointment, everything like that. If they're handling more than that, more than likely they're leaving deals on the table just because they didn't have enough time to get them back to that person or they're being, or you have that customer who is high needs, you know, and they're taking up a lot of time and everything like that. It's going to happen. You know, be understanding about that. And it's perfectly, they're a perfectly legitimate customer. It's just going to take you longer. Um, But making sure that you have enough people in place to handle the traffic that's coming in. And it also kind of brings you to the conversation about, what is my traffic? What does it look like? What is it made up of? You know, um, what's the difference between a contact and a lead? And this is something I've, I've kind of been, I work with my clients to kind of understand the difference of what me as a marketer and as an advisor and as a consultant, someone's working closer to the what can I actually get you? I can't get you an appointment. I can't get you, I can't even get you a sale. I can get you an opportunity. I can't get you a lead. I can get you an opportunity to make that, but it all depends on a lot of things. You know, for one, I can pull the levers. I can give you a strategy that'll drive people to look at your cars, to look at your service offerings, to show up at the dealership. Hopefully I don't control your inventory. I don't control your inventory mix. I don't control your pricing Mm -mm. and I don't control your sales profit, all of which influence whether someone goes from being a contact to a sale. Yep. Or I'm sorry, let me say that again. I, Going yep. from a contact to a lead to a sale. So, yep. Those are those important things. And I know oftentimes we look at like the third parties, the uh, auto traders, the cars.coms, the car gurus. That initial contact from that person who's coming from that area, I don't necessarily think we should be calling it a lead right away. If they become a lead, absolutely. They mm-hmm. can definitely become a lead. But initially it's a contact. Yeah. Then it determines there's there's kind of a 
you kind of filter out because you've got that person calling in, hey, do you have the, I see you've got a 90, uh, 98 Camaro. Do you have an 88 Camaro? And you're like, no. That person was not a lead. They were a contact at first. Now, if you said, I don't have an 88 Camaro, but I can get you one, or are you interested in this 98 Camaro? Then they can become a lead. But initially, that's just a contact. People trying to get in touch with you and ask you a question. Um, you can mark them as a lead eventually. But understanding the difference between contacts and leads and all that kind of stuff, that it's very important, especially in the modern retailing experience. Well, I think I'll take that one step further in this crazy time space we're in right now where I'll just leave it at that. We all know what it means in the world we're in right now in the auto industry. So you have dealerships that because of where we are, either are taking pricing off the website, which that's fine. Mm -hmm. I get it. Especially if you don't want to confuse the customer. Um, But if you have a DR tool and you've taken that pricing off, now you don't have a DR tool anymore. So, okay, that's fine. Do what you got to do. If that's the case, now you're relying on two things, well, not more, multiple things are going to happen now. And this is happening across the nation. So uh, now you're relying on multiple things to happen. One, the consumer is going to have to go either chat in, I'm guessing, or contact mm-hmm. us. You're going to have to rely on the dealership to enter the information into the CRM. So you're relying on the employees to capture that first party data, which that is a whole other segment of how important <laughs> first party data is. Uh, yeah. Another issue where you can't, you can no longer uh, market any new, any type of anything because you don't have pricing and that's pulling from there. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, there's so many different things going on now when you're removing the pricing. And I, I 100% understand my dealerships are doing oh, yeah. this. Just understand the ripple effect that is happening when you do that. I'm not sure that dealerships fully grasp what is happening. And I get it that, hey, we're making so much money hand over fist. And I totally get that. Just understand mm-hmm. the ripple effect that's happening that you are I, not most likely. I've already seen is, it from multiple dealerships. Yeah. You're losing your first party data. You can't advertise. Um, your, the yeah. information in your CRM and, and, you, and now your DMS is, is, is garbage. Uh, so, so I'm sure you're seeing that from your end as well as that you're, you're just not, you can't do a whole lot with information. I, I think we understand in this climate why there's all the issue not putting a pricing. Pricing is fluctuating so much and everything like that, that they're, you know, the call for pricing it. Uh, I'm going to go back. One, one of my mentors in the industry, a gentleman by the name of Randy Sparks, who works for Lithia. Um, I remember one time we were having a conversation and he said to me, when it comes to pricing, price the cars you want to sell. <laughs> And that became the truth because when you look at studies, and, and there have been a lot of studies about this, what, one of the things that people said that's most important to them, but they say it's sometimes hard to find, is the price of the car or the transparency of the price. More so than any other message you can put up or say, people are looking for the price. And price transparency is very important to people. So you put up your price if you can let people know how much the car is. You know, they're not, for the most part, they've done their research. They're not dumb. They are looking for the price. Now, prices may fluctuate, all that kind of stuff. But I totally understand that. I totally understand the, the hardship on this that the dealerships are facing. They're basically facing a self-piece choice. But I will tell you, when you don't have a price of your car, you're actually limiting your advertising channels. So, so you can't advertise dynamic inventory if you don't have a price, 
you have to have a price on that vehicle at some point. It doesn't have to immediately to display in the ad, but it has to be within a click away for it to advertise. So uh, I've worked with dealers where it's like, well, we need advertising these cars. I said, well, I, you have to put your pricing on because you're not going to be able to put through a, a car without a price. They're just mm-hmm. not going to do it. And plus, you know, there are becoming state laws about advertising, about what you can put and put in those advertising. So you've got, and it all varies by different states. So there are some issues with that where you need to have pricing, you need to have disclaimer on that price or whatever you want. But the pricing is definitely a very important thing for the consumer because they value it so highly. They want to know how much they can pay for this. Like that is the second biggest purchase in their lifetime. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that and we could probably go on and on on this one for a, a long time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will stop right there on that topic. But yeah, it is very, very important. And in first party data, I'm sure that. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, you're losing access to a lot. You're losing access to a lot. As anyone knows who's been in the industry a while, um, a lot of the data we used to get are now being lost to privacy concerns and privacy laws. So the more information you're able to gather yourself from people interacting with your advertising or interacting with your website, the better off your future marketing is going to be because you're losing insights to people left and right. iOS 14 update, people who are aware of this, it was Apple made an update to its operating system um, a year ago. Whereas they made it easier for you for them to for Apple phone users and Apple product users to opt out of cookie tracking and tracking of third party data sites and first party data sites and everything like that. It was a huge mess when we had to update a lot of Facebook advertising because Facebook took that and ran with it and they made you verify your website domain and add in these pixels and do all this other stuff. It's that just became very problematic, very problematic as an industry. But understand that you're losing access. We're looking at a cookie-less future where cookies are not going to be a thing anymore tracking people. Um, we're losing access to that. So the more information you're able to collect nowadays yourself, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, it's it's really, really big. It's uh, I, I keep, you know, as you all keep trying to preach this, that if your data is not clean and you do not have your, your DMS should be your Bible. If that's not clean, mm-hmm. you've got a massive issue. Your CR, we all know CRMs, it's garbage in, garbage out. There, I, there are very, very few dealerships that their CRM data is clean. We all, that's just, a, we all know this. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It, it happens. You've got people doing different things. You know, there's yeah. all types of reasons why this happens. Yeah. But the whole thing is, I think, when you've got the situation with your CRM or your DMS is just, go through there every so often and make sure people are following the process. People are, you know, you clean up some of the stuff. You can hire third parties to clean your data. I mean, you often have times, you also have your own customers. They're giving you phone and email addresses because they don't want them being contacted. So using a company to clean your data and verify information, it can be very helpful. Now I know it can get expensive. So just be cognizant of that. Mm-hmm. And think about when you're investing in your marketing and your advertising, think about the things that are actually going to make your marketing and advertising better. Yes. Number one, clean data. So you can find the right people to target. I mean, Facebook, Google, you can all upload custom audiences and then they'll go find people who are similar to the people who have already bought from you. That's how you optimize most of the time. You're optimizing your advertising. The other thing is I always tell people take pictures of your cars. And yes. it's got... It's gotten so much better recently, I think in the last couple of years where people started figuring out that, 
oh, people want to see what the car actually looks like and not what it could look like. Shocker. Take the, yeah. And I've, I've said, I've preached this for, uh, I'm going to say at least the last seven years to dealers. Yep. If you've got a choice between getting true car leads or taking photos of your cars or some other thing like that, take pictures of your oh, cars. Take a photo. Yep. The photos of your cars. Uh, Auto Traders have studied this. Cars.com has studied this. So many yep. different vendors have studied this. People who work in this, that you get far more engagement and far more likelihood of conversion when you've got pictures of the actual car. People don't buy cars sight unseen. I'm, I'm sure there are a few that break their role, but for the most part, they want to see what the car looks like before they even go into the dealership. It's What's amazing to me is that uh, it, it doesn't matter if I'm buying a pair of shoes, I'm, bear, I'm buying this t-shirt, I'm buying whatever I'm buying. Mm-hmm. Aside from a freaking $50,000 vehicle, I get 30 photos on it. I get a video of it. I get an mm-hmm. entire video review of it. But I go and I'm trying to buy, like we said, the second biggest purchase of my life. And there's a stock photo of it. Or let's say a dealership's very involved and they'll have 25 photos of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, it just, it never ceases to amaze me. I'm like, how is the second biggest purchase of my life? I can't get a video of it. Okay. And I understand it takes a lot. We go through a lot of vehicles, mm-hmm. a lot of vehicles. And there's how process is issues and everything like that. And there's I get it. But yeah. This, oh, yeah. my, my Yeti. I can get an entire, this is a, what, $30? I can get an mm-hmm. entire video on this thing. <laughs> I just, I'm like, how is it that even a mom and pop store, I can get my, it doesn't matter what the, the item is, any other e-commerce, anything out there, I can get an entire, I, I know this t-shirt I bought, there's an entire video on it. And it's mm-hmm. just like, how is it that we can't, well, we can't, there's not can't, I pause this. There are dealerships out there that do it and they do it a phenomenal mm-hmm. job. So we can get- you a great job. And they yeah. do a phenomenal job. And I can think of a lot off the top of my head right now. Um, it, by and large, we're, we're not there. And so it's just, come on. Yeah. The, study, the studies are out there. Like you said, Auto Trader, they did the that. The studies are out there. We all know that, you know, an increase in engagement. I think they did that study, I, I want to say. I think it yeah, was. There, were, there were studies in six, uh, 2016. There were studies as recently as 2019 um, yeah. where they showed, like, I think it was anywhere from like an 8 to 20% improvement in engagement and conversion. It was some ridiculous amount that was like, why am I buying other things when I, I can make all of my marketing better by just investing and making sure I have really good photos of my cars. Yeah. Um, and that in and of itself, can I always like to compare our industry to real estate because they're two very expensive purchases. There's yes. Things, and they're also things that people want to see in person before they buy it. I, I don't know about you, but I've never bought a house. So we just bought one three years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's the same situation, whereas I want to see pictures of the house I might be looking at that I'm going to probably go to an open house about. I'm, if I'm going to buy a car, which if, uh, jokingly, if you're, you know, in LA, you know, you live in your car, Yes. you know, basically. So, I mean, something that you might actually be a second home because you're in it so much, yeah. you're going to want to see what it looks like. Well, I think even taking it and, uh, at a later date, I'm gonna. I want to bring uh, someone that's a little bit more versed on this than I am. But uh, you've got everything now in the metaverse, but uh, everything in VR, and I can bring mm-hmm. up whether it's Amazon or Wayfair or Home Depot, and I can bring it up and say, okay, how is this going to look in my space? So mm-hmm. I think I don't. 
I, I want to say, I thought Brian Kramer and shout out Brian Kramer. I believe I saw him do something on this, but I was thinking of this a couple of weeks ago of like, okay, how can we do something more with that? And Cadillac back in, God, they did a present. I was, uh, oh my gosh, this is probably in three years ago. I want to say mm-hmm. they were doing this with all the dealerships <clears throat> where they were bringing this is very, very expensive, but each dealership they want to sign up and it was just give up your first unborn child, but it was really cool. You could bring on the VR headset mm-hmm. and you could test drive the car. And it was all virtual reality. Now, now that VR is a little bit more, I mean, anyone can get it, you know, get the Oculus for 300 bucks. Yeah. I'm wondering how we can bring that more into the, into the everyday life, into dealerships. Now, I don't know. We'll, I think at some point we'll get there, but it's, yeah. it's so commonplace that, I mean, I can, I can put on my VR headset and, and watch the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, they're the first NBA team to have it all where they've got, I think it's like 150 cameras. So yeah. yes, it's expensive, but I think there's a way we can get that into the to dealerships. And uh, I would like to bring on someone. I, so if anybody's watching I, this yeah. is doing it, hit me up. I want to know if you're doing something like this. Yeah, no, I, I think there's definitely a future where people are going to do their initial impression of the car is going to be a virtual reality sort of based experience, whereas they're actually sitting in the driver's seat, but they're doing it with an Oculus headset or some yeah. sort of headset to look around it. I think that's eventually going to happen. I think it's going to happen for a lot of things, but I still think that eventually getting down to the nitty gritty, people are going to touch and feel. Oh, they, yeah, there's, there's nothing a difference. Take the between, place of that. Yeah. Nothing's going to take the place of that. The, the touch and feel of things. I, maybe there's a future where people don't touch and feel things anymore, but, you know, but you know, that's kind of a Jetson sort of future, I guess. But um, I don't think it's the future that we're going to have anytime soon. You know, no, I don't think maybe our not in our generation might be the next generation or yeah, so, the next but... generation. You will have Rosie the robot. Yeah, be, <laughs> be your homemade. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, okay, Mike. It has been so great talking to you. Um, we've got a couple of lightning round questions. Everyone that comes on, sure. facts not feelings. Uh, so we're gonna okay. rattle them off here. Good times, heart be still. All right. So outside of work. What are, uh, what's your favorite hobby? What do you do? Like to do, what do you like to do to unwind? What are some of your favorite hobbies? So my, my big hobby is photography. Um, I, I am a photographer. I'm a kind of an artsy photographer for the most part. Um, I got into it a few years ago. Um, and actually you can see like right there, this little yeah. barn that's, that's actually one of my photos. Oh, wait. Uh, I, th- this is a barn that's over in Marlboro, New Jersey. It's an old B-town barn. And I've been photographing this barn for the last few years at different seasons, different times of the year, different lights, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's actually a different version of this photo that is in the collection of the Central Jersey Arts Council. No way. Yeah, it it became, it was part of an exhibit uh, in Carteret, New Jersey at the Carteret Performing Arts Center that was all about fall and autumn in New Jersey for when the Carteret uh, Performing Arts Center was opening. So that's actually now in the collection there. That was one of my photos that became prominent as part of New Jersey. Um, I love snapping images. I love taking images from different perspectives. Um, I love editing photos. That's something that's become a very big passion of mine, taking what I initially thought a photo would look like and then turning it into something different. So I actually, you, most of the art that's hung on the walls of my house are actually my own photos that I've taken over the years, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it's funny. My wife loves the fact that I, I, I love photography only from the standpoint is she could pick anywhere in the world and go for vacation. As long as I can bring my camera 
I can, I'm going to be having a good time. So she never has to worry about me enjoying whatever vacation or trip we go on, because as long as I can bring my camera, I'm cool. I'm doing whatever. No way. What, uh, what type of camera do you have? I have a Nikon D3400. It's Nikon. not the most professional. It, I, I originally got that camera because it's great to learn on. Mm-hmm. For someone who's more new to the D, DSLR kind okay. of style of, of shooting, there's a lot of modes, there's a lot of teaching into it. It's very easy to control everything. Um, and, it's, and it's also very adaptable to different lenses. So that makes it, you know, I when I'm out on these little photo journeys of mine, I've been only got my camera, but I've got an entire bag of six different lenses that I'm adding and taking off. Things that do everything, everything from, you know, if I'm shooting something that's more street based, I'm using usually like a 35 millimeter lens, fixed lens, or a 55 millimeter fixed lens. If I'm doing things that are a little further away, like uh, my wife and I who took a vacation in Virginia, we went hiking through these woods. I had on there a, a telescope, a telescoping uh, lens that went from 50 millimeters up to 300 millimeters. Um, so that way I could take things that were farther away. I could take things a little closer and everything like that. Plus I had in my pocket at the time, just a, a basic kit lens so that I could just, my wife's like, we can go get lost in the woods. This is fantastic. We're going to get out and you're going to have a good time. And I'm just going to be panicking about how the hell do we get home? Cause you're not going to be paying attention. You're going to be like, Ooh, I want to take a picture of that sunspot. And that tree looks amazing. And I can do that. I'm like, okay, don't worry. I'll pay attention. Okay, so you're talking about going on vacation. So, next question would be where, if you can go anywhere in the world or for favorite vacation spot, one way or round trip ticket, where are you guys going? Uh, you, you know, it's funny. We, my wife and I, because of the pandemic, we haven't been able to take many vacations. The last vacation we took, we, we rented a house down in Virginia, which was a lot of fun. We rented it near Williamsburg, Virginia. And it was this house that was in the middle of like, eight acres of woods and everything like that. It was totally off the grid. It was fun. It was nice. Um, but the last place my wife and I went on vacation, which we had a wonderful time, was Palm Springs, California. Okay. We, My wife and I both have a kind of an obsession with mid-century modern style as an architectural style and as just an art style. And you know, if you've been to Palm Springs, you know it's mid-century modern homes for as long as the eye can see. Um, we'd never been there before and we met up with some friends who lived in LA and we had such a wonderful time checking out the restaurants, seeing things and driving up. We drove all the way to uh, Kalazoon, uh, California. That's where they shot part of Pee Wee Herman's adventure. You know, I'm dating myself oh, a lot wait. right here. I did not know that. Large Marge, yeah, the yeah. whole Large Marge oh, scene yeah. and the dinosaur. Yeah, it yeah. was filmed right over there. And the dinosaur still kind of exists, even though the restaurant mm-hmm. itself has been abandoned. I think they actually knocked it down. But those kind of things were like, my wife and I consider pop culture sport. So we will run out to like those kind of things and have a great time and see those kind of things. And so that was one of our better adventures, driving through the deserts of California and looking for places where Pee Wee Herman was. Okay, nice. All right, go, go, Pee Wee Herman. Holy crap, that's a, yeah, that, I just had like a whole wash of uh, uh, memories there for a minute there. Oh, deja vu, uh, yeah, a little nostalgia. A little nostalgia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nostalgia is a killer, isn't it? For okay. good and bad. Uh, all right, so because we're on facts, not feelings, in, you deal a lot with a, a lot of different dealerships and clients. Um, what is something you have to, I'd say the most common 
then you're trying to constantly dispel between facts, not feelings with your clients. One of the things I always I run into often is people looking for their own advertising. And I always have to tell them, I said, okay, if you're seeing my advertising, the advertising I'm running, it's not doing a good job. <laughs> Even though you take activities that look like you're a shopper, you're not a shopper. You're not shopping to buy a car. You're not going to convert. You're not buying a car. Yes. I don't want my ads to serve to you, even though it's, you know, it's pay-per-click. So, you know, you click on a and you get charged money. But if my ad is going to you, my target is all wrong. Mm-hmm. I've got to make sure that algorithm and that targeting is getting up. So I'm getting in front of people who are going to buy a car in front of you. So this is a tip for anyone out there. If you're looking for your own advertising, stop. Stop. Don't do it. It's not because your agency is trying to pull one over on you and everything like that. It's because the targeting should be that it, you're not seeing your own ads. Because here's the thing with Facebook. Facebook will serve you ads, but if you don't interact with the ad or if you don't click through things, if you don't take a certain number of actions within the ad, it'll, start ser- it'll stop serving to you as it should. Because if I keep serving an ad to someone who's never going to convert who's never going to become a lead, who's never going to become a sale. Why am I doing it? Why is that targeting? That's not good targeting. So that's one thing I always like to spell with with my clients is making sure that they understand targeting is targeting, whereas you may not to your own ad. I will send you copies of those ads. I'll send you ad previews. I'll make sure you understand what the ad looks like and you're comfortable with it and like it and all that kind of stuff. But don't go looking for your own ad. It's not good. And if you're seeing your ad too frequently, let your agency know so that they can adjust targeting so you are not being targeted because you are not a shopper. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. If the targeting is doing its job, if the algorithm is right, you won't see your ads. It, yes, it's, yeah, exactly. So being a disruptor in the industry, in a good way, obviously, mm-hmm. what is something like the good lesson that you've learned or the hardest lesson you learned and something that you would tell your younger self? It, it's very interesting to, you know, I have to think back a long way. I, I think something I would tell myself is don't be afraid to lay out what you think is the right thing to do. I think, you know, early on in my career, is, you know, I, I'd come from a different industry. So I was very hesitant to apply what I learned from other industries to automotive. Automotive is its own beast as far as marketing goes. It's very different. Yet we can take lessons from other industries to make it better. And I think early in my career, I was very hesitant to do that. And I think what I needed to do and be more confident is that we can, as marketers, as dealers, we can have very good open conversations about throwing ideas out there, talking through ideas so we can find the right solution. And I think in my career, I, I, I was hesitant to do it at first. And then I kind of learned from some other folks about how to do it. So I would tell my younger self, don't be afraid to throw those ideas out there. Just make sure you understand it might not be the best idea, but it might lead you in the direction to a great solution. Yeah. I think talking about, I know you and I have had multiple conversations where (laughs) I didn't, I had to talk it through and I'd pick it up the phone. Like, Hey, just walk me through this. Make sure I'm on the right path. I'm not on the right path. Tell me, Brooke, shut the hell up. You're on the wrong path. Let me know. <laughs> and it was, hey, just, hey, take it down. You know, I had to take it 10 seconds to breathe and I would call you or I did. I simply just didn't have the answer. And it was like, hey, let's mm-hmm. just talk this through. And so 
Uh, I 100% agree with that one. And I think, you know, it's funny in our conversations, it's always great to come to me with a problem or, or an issue or something like that. And as we talked it through, it's like we were almost developing at times a new way of doing it and how mm-hmm. to make it better when yeah. we were just, it was just like, okay, I'm having this issue. How do we, what, what can we do with this to make it this? And it's like all yes. of a sudden it became this other thing that we could apply mm-hmm. other places. And, and that's what it is. You know, marketing, advertising, especially it's a collaborative. You have to be collaborative, especially I will tell dealers and dealer principals and GMs, work with your agency, talk to your agency, tell them what's going on. You know, even if it's just a short email about, hey, this is happening or something like that, work with them, be collaborative. It's going to make everything that much better. Oh, yes. It's, and that's the whole thing goes back to a partnership, right? If you're, Mm -hmm. if you're not, if you don't have two people going, pulling for the same common goal, you're never going to reach it. And so you really, you really do have to have that partnership. And if you just decide one day or just decide not at all, I'm just never going to reach out to that customer, reach out to that person and reach out to the partner. Why even have that, have that partnership at all? Why even have that relationship? Because the relationship will only go as far as the person who wants it the least. And so yeah. you'll, you'll never go anywhere. Um, let's see. Uh, let's go with, what's your favorite car? <laughs> actually, my favorite car was a car that was never actually produced. It was only a concept. Oh. It was, um, so back in the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, Ford released the Ford 99. The Ford 99 was a tribute, was a concept car tribute to the 49 Ford Coupe to celebrate its 50th anniversary. Oh. Anyone knows the history of cars? 49 Ford Coupe was one of the most popular cars ever made. It sold a lot. You know, you had the, at the time when the 49 Ford Coupe came out, um, it was post-war years. Um, people had more money. Um, economy was booming. People were able to afford cars. Cars were wore out. So the 49 Ford Coupe was one of them. And the Mercury version too, the 49 Mercury Coupe, there was also very hot selling cars. So Ford and the Celebrate put out a car, it was called a Ford 99. And it was this beautiful minimalist car. So they took the Thunderbird chassis, remember they did the revitalization yes. of the Thunderbird. Oh. So they took the revitalization of the Thunderbird, they put a V8 engine in it, and they made this minimalist art deco interior and design that was just it was gorgeous. And it was yeah. one of the first cars I saw with a translucent roof. So now that we have translucent roofs yeah. more common, Ford was one of the ones that kind of started off. And it was this just beautifully designed car. Performance-wise, I mean, it was performed like the Thunderbird. It wasn't meant for performance. It was meant to show off yeah. design capabilities. That's gorgeous. But if you look it up, look at the Ford 99. I'm, it was beautiful. I only think they made me in here. <laughs> I think they only made three of them. Um, but it was just a gorgeously designed car, uh, just showing off what was capable with cars at the time and how you can simplify things. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I, I, I kind of feel ashamed of myself that I somehow don't know this vehicle. I usually know I'm a bit of a it's, car it's buff and very, I don't know this car. Yeah, it's very rare. I mean, if I had to pick another car, you know, it's funny, I go back. Um, it was the probably 1966 or 1967 Volvo P1800. Okay. If you remember that car, yeah, oh, it was yeah, the car yeah. that it was the car that was the car in the Saint TV series with Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it holds a special place in my heart was my dad actually had a Volvo P eighteen hundred when he got out of college. No way. And yeah, my dad got out of college. He got a job. And he was living in St. Louis at the time, and he was making a good amount of money. He was a single guy, 
And he loved the same TV series with Roger Moore. He loved all the James Bond movies and all that kind of stuff. He was never going to be able to afford a, 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 DB, a DB5, you know, the Aston Martin or anything like that. But he could afford a Volvo P1800. So he bought the Volvo P1800. It was silver with like a red leather interior. He was just like in love with it. And six months later, he got drafted and had to sell the car. Ah. Oh. <laughs> That is that sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he had no he had no one who could store it for him. He was going to be gone. Yeah, he was being shipped off to Fort Knox for ba- basic training, and so uh, he, he had an uncle who was living in Timor. Also, um, he didn't have any place to keep it, so he ended up having to sell it. And oh, he never got anything like that. He eventually bought another sports car years and years later, but it was never the same. It was never the same as having that beautiful, and, and that was a beautifully designed car. Oh, it's gorgeous. It was gorgeous. It was had kind of elements of um, of the Corvettes at the time mixed with, you know, things that were more like the Aston Martins of the time, the BMWs of the time, Mercedes-Benz at the time. So it had a lot of that, but it had at the time, you know, Volvo was kind of a performance brand and eventually mm-hmm. had that, got that name for its safety features. But the early Volvos were very much performance sports coupes. Mm-hmm. They were just darn right sexy. They oh, were yeah. very cool looking. And they were very simple and easy to drive. And they were cool. Oh, so it's, it's kind of funny. So when they did the uh, Saint movie with Val Kilmer and Elizabeth Shue, mm-hmm. he's driving uh, at the time that first, that Volvo, I think it was like, what, the C something? I forget what it was. It was the Volvo C. Oh, what was it there? Give me a second. C80, maybe? I think it was a coupe. Yeah. It was a coupe convertible. Yeah. And you had a while since I've seen that movie, man. So that was basically the closest thing Volvo had at the time to the P1800. And it was funny because he turns on the radio and there's Roger Moore reading the news. So Sir Roger Moore reading the news. So there was that nice little, if you're you're looking for those kind of Easter eggs, which back then, I mean, Easter eggs weren't a thing, but you still had those little moments where you connected the larger scope of where things came from. Love it. Uh, well, I, I, good choices, by the way. Very good choices. And I, I'm, I'm definitely you. going to look at the Ford 99 and I uh, uh, will admit I do not know what that car is. So I'm going to look it up. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure speaking with you and uh, sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. And just thank you so much. And uh, this has been a great conversation. I love when getting the opportunity to talk about these kind of things. Oh, and I, I love picking your brain as always, as you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Stay safe and be kind, everyone. And have a wonderful rest of your week. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>